Our governor called us in to deal with the flag. You're going to love this. Just love it. That sits out front. Let's deal with the national sin that we face today. We talk about abortion, but this gay marriage thing, I believe we'll be one nation gone under, like President Reagan said. If we're not one nation under God, we'll be one nation gone under. This is the broadcast. The broadcast is heard on KPFK 90.7 in Los Angeles, 91.7 FM, KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, on iTunes, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, RadioOrNot.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, and Radio Sputnik five days a week. The broadcast, as the name implies, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today, you've got me. I'm Nicole Sandler of radioornot.com, where I hold court five mornings a week, uh, in for Brad and Desi. And, you know, if you're wondering... As I did, as I do every time I listen to this show, is Brad really like bragging about being in the middle? I mean, does the man not have a a firm stance on anything? What is this stuck in the middle stuff? Well, I was curious about it. So when Brad Friedman was on my show, the Nicole Sandler show at RadioOrNot.com last week, I asked him about it. We've we've been running the broadcast daily for what about a month now? Yes. Thank you very much. You, I, I greatly appreciate. It. I'm delighted and honored to be and, on the Radio or Not Network. Aw, thank you. And and it's it's a pretty exclusive group these days. It's like just us. And I've really I enjoy the show, which is hard for me to say sometimes because you know I, you have a hard time saying nice things. To I know because you? you're like the brother I never had. And 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 here I have taken you in. As a lost soul, I've, I've uh, you've, you've stayed in my house. I have. You have. I, I've, I've taken care, looked after you, <laughs> and the thanks I get is I come on your show, yeah. and you call me a blue dog dem. Well, what you, the f- you, you brag about you know your your theme song is here I am stuck in the middle with you. Really, you you can't take a firm stance on anything. You got to be just like playing both sides of the fence. Well, you know, it's interesting that you asked me that, Nicole, because, you know, I've been using that uh, uh, theme song now for, like, uh, well, about 12 years, more really? than a decade. Really? And Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and very few people have, have asked me about that. I've been kind of waiting for someone <laughs> like you. Astute. To, yes. to ask a question right. about that and, and say, well, what does this mean? Does this mean you're a, you're a centrist? You're right. a middle of the yeah. What does it mean, uh, Brad? Does it mean you're a blue dog? No, what actually? What it means is no, not that I am a okay. blue dog. Yeah. Uh, what it means is that I'm with the people. I think that you know, years ago when I started playing it, we had these uh, Republicans uh, and 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 the vast majority of the mainstream media sort of playing along with this idea 
that America was a center-right country right. and that, you know, we were more conservative than, than not, which I always thought was bull. And, you know, I thought the fact that, uh, you know, the things that I believe in, they're not, you know what, Bernie Sanders is stuck in the middle with America. What Bernie Sanders believes in, uh, you know, folks in the Republican Party, folks in the media love to describe as, you know, radical leftist. It's nonsense. There's nothing radical leftist at all about it. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, the positions that Bernie Sanders holds are the positions that the American people hold. If you look at them position by position, huge majorities agree with Bernie Sanders. And I mean by like, you know, 80% yeah. majorities on issue after issue after issue. That is the middle of this country. Right. That You're and, right. That is, that is the mainstream attitude. Uh, today, yep. more Americans agree with Bernie Sanders than agree with mm-hmm. any of the, certainly any of the Republicans. And I would say, you know, any of the Democrats, too. But Hillary Clinton hasn't made her her position known on anything, really. You know, well, no, she actually she has made her official position, whether she really believes it or not. I don't know. But she's come out on a whole bunch of issues, issues that issue after issue. And again, lining up with not just Bernie Sanders, but with the American people right. on this stuff. So when I say I'm stuck in the middle with you, I'm talking to the American people. I'm saying I'm with you guys. You know, don't let them, you know, believe. And this, you know, I started playing it back years ago when, oh, my God, was I tarred as a, you know, a leftist, commie, pinko, revolutionary, you know, Che Guevara-loving America right. hater or something like that, right? And I was right. saying, nope, I'm, just, I'm right there with you. I'm stuck in the All right, all right, I get it, I get it. In the middle, because we where we are is where America is, right? Well, that is unless you are a state senator from South Carolina. Yeah, if you were wondering who that Neanderthal-sounding voice at the outset of the show was, well, that would be South Carolina State Senator Lee Bright. Lee Bright, the man who proves that names don't always fit, as Mr. Lee proved this morning that he is not quite the brightest bulb in the chandelier as the South Carolina State Senate began debating the Confederate flag. So this happened this morning. Again, I present to you South Carolina State Senator Lee Bright. Members of the Senate, uh, I heard our president sing a uh, religious hymn, and then Friday night, I watched the White House be lit up in the abomination colors. It's time we've got amazing grace, we've got people in the stands here of faith. It is time for the church to rise up. Romans chapter 1 is clear. The Bible is clear. This nation was founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and they are under assault by men in black robes who were not elected by you. All we right. better make a stand. Mm. I, what I'd like to see is these folks that are, are working as as uh, in the positions that are dealing with these marriage certificates not to have to betray their faith or compromise their faith in order to, to subject themselves to the tyranny of five judges. So what we need to do is we need to debate this on the floor. Our governor called us in to deal with the flag that sits out front. Let's deal with the national sin that we face today. 
We talk about abortion, but this gay marriage thing, I believe we'll be one nation gone under, like President Reagan said. If we're not one nation under God, we'll be one nation gone under. Oh, really? And to sanctify deviant behavior from five judges, <laughs> it's time for us to make our stand, church. It's time to make our stand, and we're not doing it. We can rally together and talk about a flag all we want, but the devil is taking Ooh. control of this land, and we're not stopping him. It's time to make our stand. Let South Carolina discuss it. If the state's got to get out of the oh business of marriage, then let's get out of the business of marriage because we cannot succumb to what's being done to the future of this nation. Now, I believe that Christ teaches us to love the homosexual, <laughs> but he also teaches us to stand in the gap for, against sin. Oh, yeah. And we need to make our stand. I oh, know yeah. how people feel you of all yet? colors about this. And Not I know yet. that we need to respect our brother and love our brother, but we cannot respect this sin in the state of South Carolina. So I'm asking you to open up the signy die and let's deal with marriage. Oh, if, we're, if, we're, if we're not going to find some way to push back against the federal government like our forefathers did or push back against a tyrannical government like the founders of this nation did, let's at least not put these citizens in South Carolina in a position where they've got to choose between their faith and their job. Oh, my. Okay. So, boy, that's a lot to unpack there. But, again, that, that was South Carolina State Senator Lee Bright on a bit of a rant this morning as the state senate in south carolina began debating the flag the confederate flag you know remember the one that's hanging outside the state capitol uh that's not on a pulley system it's bolted to the top of the flagpole and it will take a two-thirds vote of the south carolina state legislature to bring the thing down now, last week, a very courageous young woman said, what the hell are we waiting for? She climbed up the pole, cut the thing down, uh, got down to the bottom of the pole only to be arrested. And uh, where the rest of us watched a South Carolina state employee have to put the thing back up again. So that was uh, the beginning of the debate this morning. State Senator Lee Bright, who is not very, by the way, um, I'm guessing he was one of the three in the 37 to 3 vote that happened today in the Republican-controlled South Carolina State Senate. Here's what happened. The Senate voted today, after some debate, to remove that Confederate battle flag from the grounds of the State House. Who knew? Yeah, the vote, which obviously emerged after last month's massacre at a historic black church in Charleston, was approved by a 37 to 3 vote in the South Carolina Senate today. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it's not, not, not done yet. I see. The Senate still has one remaining ratification vote. But because 37 to 3, it's virtually assured of success in the Senate. I'm guessing that Senator Bright is one of the three who voted against it. Okay, but now the debate shifts to the South Carolina House of Representatives, which is also dominated by Republicans, but uh, again, it's a little less clear how this vote will come out or even what the timeline is. So stay tuned. That wasn't the only big news. This was a uh, fairly large news weekend, if you know what I mean. First, last night, big victory to the U.S. women's soccer team or um, football. Yes, women's football. Uh, they beat Japan. Uh, in the in in the in the World Cup match is that what it's called the World Cup? Yes, the Women's World Cup beating Japan five to two. We have a new overnight star. Her name is Carly Lloyd. Okay, but that's not all that happened. No, last night 
The Grateful Dead played their final show ever. You know, 20 years after Jerry Garcia died, the Grateful Dead reunite for three shows and call it a mini tour. But okay, they deserve to send off. And it was the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead. Just had to get that in there. But there was other stuff yesterday as well. Greece voted with a resounding no, not just no, but hell no to austerity. Yeah, uh, the Greek people, and, and, and contrary to what our corporate media might be trying to tell you, the Greek people did not vote to withdraw from the EU. They just voted against this austerity package that uh, the European Union was trying to shove down their throats. For a better explanation of oh, what happened, um, let me bring you this report from Willie Geist and Keir Simmons over on MSNBC. A special Eurozone summit being called for tomorrow as European leaders scramble to respond to the landslide defeat for an international bailout deal in Greece. 61% of voters rejected a proposal from creditors involving more austerity. Now the debt-ridden country is in uncharted territory. Thousands celebrated outside Parliament as Greek Prime Minister Alex Tsipras praised voters for showing, quote, that democracy won't be blackmailed. He says the no vote will help him negotiate a better deal with creditors, but Greeks across the country are lining up for ration cash withdrawals at ATMs. Banks are still closed, may reopen tomorrow. One of the big questions now is whether Greece will issue its own currency and become the first country to leave the Eurozone. Overnight now, Greece's finance minister announced he's stepping down amid pressure from partners in the region. Markets overseas fell in response to that vote. Let's go right to Athens. NBC correspondent Keir Simmons is there. Keir, what's the latest from Greece? Well, just to run through uh, the fast developing uh, story, as you mentioned, the Greek finance minister decided that he would stand down. It looks like he has done that in order to try to help the negotiations because he was pretty disliked across Europe. Meanwhile, the leaders of Germany and France will meet today to talk about what they will do. It's pretty confused, but it looks like a German spokesperson is saying that they are waiting to hear what Greece uh, proposes before deciding what to do. Out on the streets, by the way, there are still lines outside. ATMs. So this country has a visible cash flow problem, and that is going to get worse and worse. But but just to frame it a little bit more, guys, I mean, I think a lot of this is being talked about in terms of whether or not it will affect world investments at share prices. They are down in Asia and Europe. We wait to see there in the US. But it's important to remember, too, that this is a strategically important country. There is a US naval base here. It is a founding member of NATO. There are concerns that if it splits away from Europe, it will head more towards uh, Russia. So there are uh, very important geopolitical issues here. And, and many people, or some people, are saying, look back, Germany didn't have to pay back many of its debts after the Second World uh-huh. War. So the kinds of divisions uh-huh. that you have seen in Europe before are being played out again, and that has to worry people. Yeah, it should worry people, <laughs> I suppose, because uh, it is a scary situation. But Greece is not entirely to blame for all this. Hopefully, you heard the wonderful David Dayan on with Brad discussing what led to this point, right? Well, this morning, I made the mistake of uh, getting up too early and turning on Morning Joke, uh, Morning Jerk, Morning Joe. And Morning Joe had the, um, uh, the, the unlikely duo sitting on the panel this morning of uh, the quite brilliant Jeffrey Sachs 
and the kind of sleazy Steve Ratner. So Jeffrey Sachs was able to get a few words in edgewise before Joe Joe cut him off and um, started uh, just giving uh, Steve Ratner way way too much airtime. Here's here's what Jeffrey Sachs was able to, to squeeze out before he was cut off by morning blow. The lack of discipline in spending, in pension programs, in tax collection. Sorry, it starts out uh, with Dr. him too. Dr. Sachs is, yeah, is it's, breathtaking. It's part of it, uh, for it's sure. A, it's a big no, 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 part but, of it. But part of, part of this as well, I don't know the basis of those numbers, but part of it is that they're in a depression that's as big as the Great Depression. Uh, there hasn't been a collapse of a modern economy like the one that Greece is in. So basically things have fallen apart. When things fall apart, uh, everything falls apart, but, including uh, it, taxes it and is, the budget. It is and it's just to, just to say that it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, this and that. One bad decision after another bad decision, lack of discipline. Yeah, well, to say that would actually be accurate, wouldn't it? Not entirely, because once this crisis hit in 2008, right. Actually, the way that it was handled in Europe was very bad. It's been extremely bad for five years. They haven't proposed realistic approaches to this. So the question is, how will the situation in Greece and Europe affect us? Because, you know, the United States is the center of the world. The universe, actually. Well, USA Today tells us that stocks fell today but ended off those early lows as investors expressed concern over Greeks' volatile debt crisis, but did not go into panic mode. However, U.S. crude plunged 7.3%. So I guess that's good for gas prices. But we have a problem when it comes to oil. In fact, today is a day of classic news dump stories. It's the Monday after a big holiday weekend, and we had two giant news dumps at the beginning of the weekend. On Thursday, the U.S. Justice Department announced that the United States, together with several state and hundreds of local governments, had reached a settlement for all remaining civil claims arising from the BP Deepwater Horizon explosion in the Gulf of Mexico five years ago. That happened Thursday night. I heard not a peep about it in the mainstream corporate media over the 4th of July weekend. But then again, it was the 4th of July weekend and I wasn't paying attention, nor was anybody else. But that's okay. You didn't miss it because they didn't talk about it. We will. The other big news dump happened actually last uh, Tuesday night when the State Department released that first bunch of Hillary Clinton emails. Well, those were released because of our friend Jason Leopold of Vice News, the FOIA terrorist who filed those FOIA requests. So uh, we'll speak with Jason Leopold towards the end of the hour. But next, when we return from this short break, I'll be joined by Antonia Juhas. She's an author, a journalist, an oil industry expert who has written uh, three books and tons of magazine articles dealing with the oil industry and the various spills that we've experienced over the years. Uh, We'll take a break, come back with Antonia Juhas to find out about this settlement announced Thursday late afternoon, right on the cusp of the holiday weekend to find out, well, is it a good one? Stick around. The answer is coming up. I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com. In for Brad Friedman, it's the Bradcast. 
recorded that song a while back and updated it after the BP Deepwater Horizon disaster five years ago. The song that started out as about five minutes long now runs almost 14 minutes. Oil disaster after oil disaster from Steve Forbert. I'm Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com in for Brad Friedman on today's edition of the Bradcast. Brad will be back tomorrow. But speaking of oil spills, on Thursday afternoon, right before everyone was going off on their 4th of July holiday weekend, the Justice Department announced a settlement. Yes, one final settlement having to do with the BP disaster. So I called on Antonia Juhas. Uh, she is a policy analyst, an author, an investigative journalist who's distinguished herself as a leading oil and energy expert. In addition to writing three books on the subject, Black Tide, The Tyranny of Oil, and The Bush Agenda, Antonia's work has appeared in many publications, including Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, Harper's, New York Times, and many, many others. Now, the last time Antonio Juhas and I spoke, it was just after the fifth anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon explosion to discuss the trip she took out to the site of that blown well uh, for a feature for Harper's Magazine. She joins us today on the broadcast to tell us about the settlement that was announced on Thursday. I've been fortunate enough to have uh, uh, have had a lot of conversations with Antonia over the last few years. Um, obviously, mostly talking about the oil industry is that is that well, that's your area of expertise. Did you start out in journalism saying that you're going to cover things dealing with the uh, oil industry? Yeah, my background is in the oil industry. I um, have actually both undergraduate and graduate degrees in public policy. I went to work for Congress for some time um, and quickly started turning my attention to basically issues of corporate power, and it didn't take long for that to turn into the oil industry. It didn't take long for that to turn into writing. And then sometime after that, it became investigative journalism as my focus. So really 
uh, the oil sector brought me into investigative journalism, not the other way around. Right. Wow. And well, now you've got three books under your belt and a, a slew of articles. In fact, uh, we last spoke uh, after the long-awaited Harper's piece finally came out detailing the trip you took about a year earlier to the site of the Macondo Well, of the of the Deepwater Horizon explosion, to see what's happened, well, in the four years, because you were there uh, right around the fourth anniversary of the explosion um, since. And now, today we're talking because um, just Thursday, boy, talk about a, a great news dump day, the Thursday before the Friday holiday of a, a long Fourth of July weekend, the Justice Department on Thursday announced that the U.S., um, as you write, together with several state and hundreds of local governments, had reached a settlement for all remaining civil claims arising from that explosion. So this has got to be a massive settlement. If this is for all remaining civil claims, right? It's a massive settlement. There are still some outstanding um, civil and commercial claims and medical claims, and those are people who didn't want to agree to be part of the initial payout that BP gave, uh, very low sums that people could take on the agreement that they wouldn't sue BP, um, and people who were um, part of a class action. So that's a separate group. But these are all remaining government um, uh, civil uh, the civil cases against BP. So this is a huge settlement. Um, it's all of the federal all of the federal cases, um, the leading states impacted by the spill, and some 400 local governments, like you said, 18.7 billion dollars. And it sounds like a lot of money, um, but what I entitled my my piece, which ran on Rolling Stone, was BP got off cheaply because this amount of money, while large doesn't address the impacts of the world's largest offshore drilling oil spill. And the amount of the settlement doesn't meet BP's legal obligations. It doesn't meet the cost necessary to restore the Gulf, which BP is required to do under the Oil Pollution Act. And it certainly doesn't dissuade other actors from behaving in the same type of grossly negligent behavior, which a federal judge said that BP did to lead to this disaster. And so I really think that this $18.7 billion is just a drop in the bucket for what BP should have been held to account for um, for each of the areas that this settlement seeks to cover. Right. And so, so Antonia, I mean, I'm looking, reading through the Rolling Stone piece, and it was just it was just like in September, if I remember correctly, that that BP was found grossly negligent negligent for causing this explosion. And um, and then uh, you this is from directly from the Rolling Stone piece. You wrote opening BP to as much as forty three hundred dollars per bar- barrel of oil spilled under the CWA. Um, but but they're, they're not having to pay anything close to that, are they? Not even close. So, you know, these are what the settlement covers is the Clean Water Act. And so this was the largest offshore drilling oil spill in history, as I said. Millions of barrels of oil spilled through the determination that the judge made that BP was grossly negligent that opened BP up to this highest possible fine. And what the federal government was arguing for was $18 billion under the Clean Water Act 
um, just a straight application of the law um, under the federal government's assertion that 5 million um, barrels of oil were spilled at $4,300 per barrel. That's about $18 billion. Right, for that alone. Yeah, for that alone. And that's also when you account for uh, a certain amount of oil that BP removed. But the judge didn't have to do that. So for under different considerations that the judge made, it looked like the Clean Water Act fine alone would have been more like $13 billion. But under this settlement, the Clean Water Act fine is only $5.5 billion. Now, let's say, you know, had the law been um, put in place the way I think it should have, Clean Water Act alone would have been $18 billion. But then this settlement also covers all of the natural resource damages and restoration. That's everything. And that's everything in the future as well, because there's no, there's not um, what's called a reopener. You can't come back to the settlement if in the future we see, you know, the oysters never come back uh, in the hardest areas of Louisiana. Or, you know, when I was in the a submarine at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, as you mentioned, looking at the impacts of this spill, the scientists identified that 30 million gallons of BP's oil still remain in the Gulf ecosystem. That's the equivalent of three Exxon Valdez oil spills. So, you know, the long-term impacts of all of that, they're still trying to figure out. We only just found out, you know, definitively that the extremely high mortality rates of dolphins that have been directly uh, linked to the BP oil spill, um, you know, that those were caused by the BP oil spill. And we care a lot about dolphins. I do too. But the most important thing about these dolphin deaths is that they're mammals at the top of the food chain, which means that they represent ecological harm throughout the entire food web that we're only just beginning to understand. Uh, Antonio Yuhas is with us. Uh, she's got a piece in the new Rolling Stone uh, at rollingstone.com uh, titled BP got off cheaply with $18.7 billion settlement. You know, it was just, I think, this weekend, and I don't even know what TV show we were watching, but there was a feature on the um, the Gulf oyster uh, fishermen, and their business has been cut. I, I mean, they showed some, like, a, a B-roll tape of this one facility from before the BP explosion. Uh, and now they showed it now. And rather than having like dozens of people out there, you know, separating the oysters, they had two. And they said they couldn't mm. even keep these two guys busy. That's how much their business has been cut. The oysters are just not breeding. And we've seen this, mm-hmm. uh, as you noted in, in, again, the Harper's piece about the submarine expedition, um, the, the, that the sea life around the well is almost non-existent, right? It's just dead? Oh, that's yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, that stretches, that blanket of oil at the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico, um, you know, stretches out for miles and miles and miles. It's a, it's a huge um, sort of uh, you know, bombed zone, nuked zone in a, in a way. Um, but then, you know, the third piece of this settlement is the economic loss by mm-hmm. the state and 400 local governments. So that's what that $18.7 billion is meant to cover. And to me, you know, it's just, there's no way that that even comes close. And if you look at the total amount now that BP is going to have to pay, you can understand why BP put out a press release saying this is a good deal for us. And the reason oh, for that it is, is a good deal for them because it is a good deal for them. Um, they had already assumed basically that they would probably end up paying about $43 billion for this disaster in total. And that's what they put aside 
with this settlement, it puts that amount up to about around um, $53 billion. But at the beginning of the spill, Moody's analytic, their financial analyst, had predicted the full cost at about $60 billion. I had actually done a calculation in looking at every cost at about $200 billion. So within those numbers, um, the National Wildlife Federation estimated that just the natural resource restoration piece should be $30 billion alone. Wow. So, you know, there's a reason why the day after the settlement was reached, BP stock price rose. Of course. Right. I hate to yeah. say it. It's like um, the, uh, the, the for-profit insurance industry, health insurance, their stocks also rose the day after the Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act because it's good for them. This was really good for BP. So this $18.7 billion settlement uh, breaks out like this, as you detail in the Rolling Stone piece. $5.5 billion in total Clean Water Act fines. And we have just discussed that that part alone sh- could have and probably should have been up to $18 billion just for the Clean Water Act fines. $7.1 billion for ecological and wildlife harms and restoration, referred to as natural resource damages that you had just talked about. This is in addition to $1 billion already committed by BP. And then for those 400 local governments and, and the states that were affected, $5.9 billion for economic damages and another $600 million for other claims, including claims for reimbursement of natural resource damages, assessment costs, and other unreimbursed federal expenses. Um, and this is it. There's no, as you said, there's no going back to the well, excuse the pun, mm-hmm. uh, for any more. This is it. Now, yeah. this is on top of the other funds that were already allocated, but my God, I mean, we're five years in... Um, we don't even still, and correct me if I'm wrong here, please, we don't really still know the the extent of the damage. We don't know if uh, the Gulf of Mexico will ever fully recover, do we? Or or do we? Oh, not at all. Um, you know, scientists are definitely still in the process of, of studying the impacts of the Gulf, um, on the Gulf. And also, um, you know, we don't know a lot of the science that's already been concluded because it was done within this process called the Natural Resource Damages Assessment. So there's a lot of mystery around a lot of the science that's already been done. But the scientists who decided that they wanted to make their work public and didn't want to have to suffer, um, you know, sort of in the dark, keeping it in that um, official process, you know, there's just been you know, damning report after damning report about long-term harm from the tiniest, you know, tiniest tube worms at the bottom of the ocean to dolphins, to whales, to birds, to oil and the corrected dispersant that was used being found in the eggs of birds as far away as Minnesota because they passed through the Gulf of Mexico. And, you know, so I just think this um, this um, settlement is both premature and cheap. But that said, you know, a lot of the local environmental organizations, a lot of the states uh, and local governments are cheering this because, you know, they were fearful that they weren't going to see anything close to this, which, of course, was possible. Uh, You know, BP is the sixth largest corporation on the planet. Um, They have fought, you know, they fought this case all the way to the Supreme Court. The settlement only came two days after the Supreme Court refused to hear one of the challenges that BP uh, put forward. Um, and upheld a lower court ruling. So, you know, there is 
there, there is a reason to understand why, given the influence and power and money and time that BP has to fight, uh, that unfortunately this could have been, you know, this might be a good deal. That said, that's a very weak statement about the status of our legal system versus companies like BP. And with this flow settlement, it means that we really have to worry that this is not um, high enough to stop other companies, perhaps like Shell that's getting ready to drill in the Arctic Ocean, and Shell is the largest corporation on the planet, to dissuade it from also engaging in the same sort of grossly negligent criminal behavior that BP engaged in as it pursued offshore oil drilling in the Arctic Ocean. Wow. I mean, so meanwhile, Antonia, I mean, just in the last few months, we had that uh, pipeline break. It was it was not offshore. It was onshore. But it uh, the oil all leaked into uh, the Pacific on the coast of Santa Barbara. We had that happen. We had probably two more bomb trains explode, just one, I believe, over the weekend. I mean, all this is a constant barrage of uh, not only um, ecological disasters, but economic as well, because in every area in every geographic region where there's one of these spills, whether it's uh, the coastal community of Santa Barbara, whether it's whatever town is affected and, and people had to be uh, evacuated because of uh, another train bomb blowing up carrying oil. Um, we just don't seem to learn from our mistakes, do we? Well, and you know, those are all you know, really important examples. Today is the two-year anniversary of the deadliest by rail incident uh, in history. It was in Lac Megantique, Quebec, and a train carrying um, really highly uh, volatile oil out of the Bakken region of North Dakota uh, derailed, exploded in the heart of town, destroyed the entire downtown, killing 47 people in its wake, and that just happened two years ago. The Santa Barbara spill you were talking about, you and I had actually discussed right when it happened, um, and that actually was an offshore oil spill. It was oil that was being pumped by ExxonMobil and Veneco, a small company offshore off the Pacific. That oil was then piped onto shore by a pipeline. It then traveled alongshore to refineries, and it was on that alongshore route that the pipe ruptured, spilling 100,000 gallons of oil onto um, beautiful state beaches actually across California because the oil went onto the beach, into the ocean. And from the ocean, it was carried into the current oh and carried all the way down the coast uh, as far down as uh, Los Angeles. And I walked on beaches in Santa Monica, you know, 100 miles away from the spill site uh, where there was um, you know, very large unusual amounts of tarmac, tar balls, um, you know, weeks later. So, you know, this is a huge problem. And when we talk about Shell uh, right now in particular, so Transocean is one of the companies that was found negligent by the judge. It was Halliburton and, negligent, uh, Halliburton and Transocean in the BP Gulf oil spill. BP grossly negligent, Halliburton and Transocean negligent. Transocean is the owner and operator of the Deepwater Horizon, which exploded. Well, Transocean is also the owner and operator of the Polar Pioneer, which is the rig that Shell is using to drill in the Arctic, to drill in the Arctic. So, you know, if our legal system isn't going to hold the companies to account, it really behooves us as the public to act as watchdogs, 
you know, to put pressure on policymakers, to put pressure on the companies to really do the due diligence that our um, legal system seems to be failing at. And one of my more recent articles for Rolling Stone was about the Kai activists, these 500 activists who went out into um, the waters of Seattle to blockade Shell's oil rigs so it couldn't make it to Alaska. And those activities have been continuing um, in opposition to offshore oil drilling. So, you know, maybe uh, that's an, uh, an, uh, a chance to end on a somewhat optimistic note. There are people out there organizing across, uh, including in Alaska, trying to, um, you know, hold these companies to account where the government is failing. Right. Um, uh, well, and, and I, I will put a link to your uh, author page at Rolling Stone so people can read the article about the Kai activists. Uh, as well as uh, your latest piece about BP getting off cheaply with this $18.7 billion settlement. Before I let you go, though, so these settlements, I'm guessing um, the BP settlements include payoffs of some kind to the families of the 11 people who were killed? No, they came to private oh. uh, settlements okay. uh, with the companies, all, with all of the companies, gotcha. because it was primarily Transocean employees who were killed, right? Um, because they were the majority of the people on the rig. But those, yeah, those those have already been taken care of. What hasn't been taken care of, however, many of the injured workers on the rigs, and there were many mm-hmm. uh, on the rigs who were injured, and many of them are still fighting through um, legal battles with the companies and now five years later many still haven't received um you know the compensation that they need for the injuries that they suffered amazing and i i know the answer to this but i have to ask it anyway um if corporations are indeed people then somebody um uh uh, should be in jail i mean shouldn't somebody have been charged with oh maybe like criminally negligent homicide or something yeah, I mean, BP settled, so there were criminal charges against BP that were very critical, most importantly, the Siemens Manslaughter Act. Eleven men died on the rig, and BP was held criminally responsible for those deaths, and BP paid a fine, a fairly minimal fine, I would argue, um, related to those deaths in the millions of dollars. I don't have the number memorized. Um, but there, the, the, the head men on the rig who work for BP and Transocean have been engaged in a legal fight um, for many years now trying to hold them to account. But no executives off of the rig, I would argue the people who really were making the decisions, because every day the rig was sending requests to shore, both to regulators and to their higher-ups in Houston at BP, saying, you know, we want to do this, we want to do that, is it okay? And each time the higher-ups at BP said yes, and each time the regulators said yes, so, you know, I think the, um, the the focus on who should go to jail should actually be focused higher up at BP, mm-hmm. and we need to look at, you know, very serious problematic behavior uh, that happened with the U.S. government. Fortunately, the Obama administration did make changes, uh, some changes with the regulatory structure, um, but nothing close to what's needed to really ensure that incidents like this don't happen again. Right. And I'm guessing that there's no open file at the Department of Justice looking to prosecute somebody for the deaths of these 11 people. That's the settlement. So, you know, no, because they they paid for it. (laughs) Wow. 
Banksters, yeah. you know, uh, killers on oil rigs. Yeah, they they get off. And, you know, if you or I do, has some minor infraction, we're going to go to jail. That's just the way things are, uh, sadly. Antonia Juhas, uh, you are, uh, I, I'm so appreciative of your work. I always know that I could get the, uh, the bottom line and the real information from you. I will um, uh, post links to um, uh, your Rolling Stone articles and other works, uh, both at, at thebradblog.com and at radioornot.com as well. Thank you so much. It's always great to talk with you. I so appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me, Nicole. All right. Take care. Antonia Juhas. Again, you can find that article we just talked about at rollingstone.com. We'll have the link up on the Brad blog. I'm Nicole Sandler of radioornot.com. In for Brad on the Bradcast today. So over the 4th of July weekend, how much time did you spend reading that first batch of Hillary Clinton emails? Yeah, I didn't think so. Me either. But coming up next, we'll talk with someone who skipped the fireworks because he was into the emails. Jason Leopold joins us next on the broadcast. I want to grow up to be a politician and take over this beautiful land. I want to grow up to be a politician and be the old U.S. of A's number one man. I'll always be tough, but I'll never be scary. I want to shoot guns. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad and Desi will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, you've got me, Nicole Sandler of RadioOrNot.com. I don't know about you, but I didn't spend any time over the holiday weekend reading the first batch of the Hillary Clinton emails. You know who did? Well, the guy responsible for them being released in the first place, the guy known as the FOIA terrorist, Jason Leopold of Vice News. You're the one responsible for these Hillary Clinton emails being released, yes? Yes, I, uh, in fact, I am. I'm responsible for them being released on the rolling basis that we're seeing them released. So we're seeing, we're going to see uh, releases every month uh, up until January. Uh, and uh, I have filed a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit for uh, for Hillary Clinton's emails and uh, a number of other documents uh, uh, related to her tenure as Secretary of State um, a while ago, way before uh, we ever heard about the you know the issues revolving around her emails. And what happened was is that the State Department uh, was very resistant to releasing anything. So you know, with our with my FOIA lawsuit, you know, my attorneys went to you know went to went to court, argued that. Um, these emails needed to be released as the State Department uh, finished processing them, finished reviewing them. And a judge in the, uh, the judge presiding over the case agreed, said, you know, force the State Department to start making these available immediately. So, yes, um, I'll take credit for it. Now, there was some um, uh, controversy over when they released this first batch. I, I was wrong. I'm thinking they were released Tuesday night. At nine o'clock. Now, I guess that's well, better that's than the controversy right there. Right, is that is that it is you know they they decided to release it late Tuesday evening uh, when most reporters are sleeping uh, and nobody is really you know awake to uh, you know, to cover it. So we usually see this as you know a time when 
uh, you know, government agencies will dump out documents that they may be, you know, they, they don't want to get uh, coverage or you know, they're embarrassed about. In this case, the State Department claims that while they agree that 9 p.m. was not an ideal time uh, for reporters, that they, you know, they had to work and get this, you know, get this posted up onto the website, and you know, they, it was out of their control. The the thing is, Nicole, is that they knew for more than a month that they needed to make these records available, these emails available. So they were already well aware because the judge ordered them to in my law in my FOIA lawsuit to make these records available on the State Department's website. And, you know, to, to suddenly say, well, you know, we, we, we were working quickly to get these together, and, and, and 9 o'clock is the only time. But that's just ridiculous. It really is, in my opinion, despite what the State Department may say, uh, a, you know, just, just an effort to try and um, quell critical coverage. Right. And, in fact, they, they addressed the time of the release in a press briefing, I guess, the other day. And, they, and uh, here, right. State they Department did. spokesman from your article that's titled 3,000 Pages of Hillary Clinton's Emails Were Just Released, Many Heavily Redacted. Um, you include the line, State Department spokesman John Kirby acknowledged during a press briefing Tuesday that the late night dump is an inconvenience, in quotes, for reporters, but he denied that it was, quote, deliberately intended to make your life harder. He said, I know that's going to be the going assumption, but it's absolutely not the case. Right. Jason Leopold is with us from Vice News. So I'm guessing, look, I, I got to admit, I didn't sit down and read through the, the 2,000 emails from Hillary Clinton or 3,000, however many there were. Somehow, I think that you spent a good part of your Fourth of July weekend, though, reading those emails, did you? Yes. I did, uh, and and I wrote several stories I'm last sorry. week about it as well. All right, so so uh, what 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 no, did you this learn? Is, this is Nicole. This is yeah. uh, you know this is how I get joy these days. Yes, you know, okay. Reading, reading emails and documents. Oh boy. Uh, you know, there's no smoke. There, there, there's no smoking gun at this in, in these emails. There's uh, uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of those stories. Um, uh, in fact, uh, I've seen stories by, uh, by by news outlets such as Vox more or less telling people, don't bother reading it because there's nothing here. Wow. Um, uh, really horrible sort of way to uh, inform the public by yeah. basically telling them to move along. Yeah. But these are really... These Pay are really no attention important. to the man behind the curtain. Exactly. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they are uh, important, uh, important documents. And... You know, uh, just to be clear, had these emails been turned over to the State Department under the Federal Records Act, uh, which is what uh, you know every government employee, uh, you know, that they're supposed to, these documents just become property of the government. Right. We would still get to see them. So this is not just Hillary. We're getting to see her private emails. Let's make, let's be clear about that. These are emails that she had on her private email server, and she was using that to, uh, this was uh, official, this conducting, so I just want to uh, make that very clear. Okay. But what's, what's interesting about this is that you really do get a, a, a sense of, uh, you know, what, what she, how she conducted herself as the nation's top diplomat. I wrote several stories uh, on, uh, you know, focusing on Afghanistan uh, and, 
certainly, you know, transparent, which is just isolating, you know, uh, Afghanistan, it appears that Hillary back in 2009 was, was sort of on the fence and her advisors, and this uh, on the fence about uh, the surge, the trip surge, if you remember, right. you know, um, early on, Obama you know, sent more troops to Afghanistan. And then there were, uh, you know, the security situation there was deteriorating, so he moved, uh, or rather his advisors, his military advisors, pressed him to send even more troops. Uh, and this was, you know, right around the time where the, you know, he was going to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, but Hillary Clinton was kind of unsure. What should she do? She reached out to, you know, a number of outside advisors, and um, they were pushing her to be way, way, way more hawkish on Afghanistan uh, than, yeah, than perhaps she may have liked to have been. Uh, that, to me, was, was you know, something that was interesting. She just had no idea kind of, you know, what to do about it. She reached out to Mark Penn. Uh, Mark oh, Penn is her Oh, my her God. Poster. Yeah, yeah who, and, from her first and, campaign, who a lot of people blame for her your poor performance. Yeah. Well, but, and here's what's, where, where it gets very interesting when you get to see why she reached out to Mark Penn. Um, it's because she was clearly concerned with how her vote, you know, would politically. I guess we could take the time and sit and read through the emails or you know, read your stuff over at Vice News, Jason, to to get an idea of what's in there. I got to tell you, I did find a piece that NPR published, 13 emails that stood out from the latest Clinton document dump. The latest, I mean, the first email dump is what they should have said. And out of all of them, the only one that really stood out to me was uh, number 13. It's from Hillary Clinton to Huma Abedin and somebody else, Lona Valmoro. The original message is from Hillary Clinton to the two of them. It was dated July 6th, 2009, so six years ago. And she wrote, I'm seeing Santa at 8.30, so won't take off until closer to 9.30. Is that okay? And the response (laughs) from Lona Valmora was, yes, I will let them know now. Santa in July? Who did she see at 8.30 that night? Uh, Yeah, no, that's... um... Uh, perhaps Santa is code word for, yes. for someone's code name. Uh, right. I have no idea. I want to know, uh, don't you? And is there any yeah, way to, yeah. to do a FOIA request of her official schedule yes. for Monday, You're July 6, 2009? Have to FOIA uh, those those other emails and, and uh, look for, look, try to find out who Santa is. The always wonderful and now incredibly famous Jason Leopold, the FOIA terrorist. You can find him at news.vice.com. Just search for Jason Leopold. Big thanks to Jason for joining us today. Also to Antonia Juhas. Uh, Her latest piece about the BP settlement is at rollingstone.com. You can find Antonia Juhas, J-U-H-A-S-Z, on the Twitters at Antonia Juhas or AntoniaJuhas.net. I'll have links uh, up at TheBradBlog.com. And that does it for me for today. It has been my pleasure to fill in for Brad Friedman. Uh, you can find me always at RadioOrNot.com. I do my own live show weekday mornings from 10 to noon Eastern. It repeats all day, alternating with the broadcast. So I'll see you at Radio or Not. And we'll see Brad and Desi back here tomorrow. 
for the broadcast. Thanks for listening.